So do you guys remember the time uh, that you bought a brand new H4N Pro and some fancy new SM58 mics so that you could make really good recordings when you're on the road and you bragged to everybody about how it would always sound great? Yeah, I remember doing that. Uh, the recording you're about to hear was supposed to be through my Zoom H4N with the SM58s, but apparently what I recorded was my own voice through the Zoom H4N without the SM58. So there's a lot of room noise. The good news is the person I was interviewing sounds fantastic. Well, it's that time of the week again. It's time for Chit Chat Across the Pond. This is episode number 608 for September 13th, 2019. And I'm your host, Allison Sheridan. This week, our guest is Doug Ingram, and I want to tell you a little bit of a story about Doug before I let him even uh, introduce himself here. Back in 2012, Steve and I went on a Mac Mania cruise where I was one of the instructors. Leo Laporte was the headliner, and he scheduled a tweet-up in Sydney. I was delighted when someone actually came to meet us, not just Leo. It was a lovely gentleman named Doug Ingram. So Doug is our, finally our guest on Chit Chat Across the Pond. What is that? Uh, seven years ago. Hi, Doug. Hi, Alison. Was it really that long ago? My goodness. I had to go look it up. <laughs> yeah, wow. I thought it was maybe five years. Yeah, time flies, you know. So um, I asked Doug to be on the show because I've started, uh, it's kind of funny, I was following this great guy on Instagram. His uh, tw his Instagram handle is Nightscapades, and he posts these absolutely spectacular photos of the Milky Way. And they're just like mind-blowingly awesome. And I made some comment back and, and then he started talking to me and I realized it was Doug that I met in Sydney. So that was kind of a funny way that uh, we reconnected and started actually chatting again. Oh, that's funny. I didn't realize that. I just thought, oh, Alison must have been following me and I because I sometimes I post from the wrong Twitter feed to the chit-chat thing. And There you go. Now I know. <laughs> Well, why don't you give us a little quick bio of your background before we dig into night, nightscapades and what that means? Sure. Well, I'm um, a middle-aged man. I live in Sydney, Australia, where I was born and have lived all my life. Um, I'm living about four suburbs from where I grew up, a bit of a tragic for our part of the world. i got three 20-something-year-old kids. Um, my wife's a school teacher still. She enjoys doing that. And I have a Mac support business that I run. Well, it's the business is called Always Apple. So anything Apple, I'm supporting and helping people out. Lots of small businesses, home users, and an increasing number of seniors, which is a really good part of the market to deal with. Oh, yeah, yeah. That might make a whole nother episode we could talk about. That's a, that's a uh, an interesting area to be in. So um, where did this Nightscapades thing come from? Yeah. Is there a story behind that? Yeah, there is. Um, I have been doing all kinds of night sky photography since I was a teenager. And when I started getting into it in the world of digital photography, I noticed that a lot of guys posting photos were referring to their shots as being nightscape photos rather than astro photos. And hmm. did a bit of chatting with people and found out that that's the kind of photography I'd been doing. It's it's essentially it's a, a landscape at night that includes the stars. So, you know, you can go out there and shoot a photo of the moon in the middle of the sky or do trails of the stars, but a nightscape includes a foreground element that's terrestrial. So it could be a lake, it could be a, a beach, whatever, have people in it, but it's a nice way of tying the immensity of the universe into we little people down here on Earth. <laughs> yeah, that's definitely a much more beautiful way to look at it. I have now successfully taken one photo of the Milky Way, but it's kind of boring because it's just the stars. Yeah, and it takes a while to realize, hey, I like it, but yeah, other people got to be interested. And so I was trying to think of a name for a Twitter handle and an Instagram handle, and I thought, heck, I go out on escapades at night. I'm going to call myself Nightscapades. Oh, I like it. I like it. All right, so what what got you into doing this more recently? You said you've been doing it for a long time since you were in high school? Yeah. Um, I In year eight at high school, which was back in the mid to late 70s, uh, we had a, an interest group at school, and it was run by the science, the head of the science department, and it was an astronomy group. And he said, look, 
we're going to meet here once a week, but I want you to go out whenever you can, look at the sky, see what's there, become familiar with it. And that night I went out and looked up and I saw two satellites whose paths were going to cross and it looked like they were going to crash. They are probably hundreds of kilometres apart or miles apart from each other. But that got my interest. I thought, wow, you can look up there and see stuff. So that was all those decades ago. And oops, sorry, I bumped the mic stand. And I got very interested in it then and I was fully into it for quite a few years and then along came further study and getting married and all that kind of stuff and my interest waned um, and it was quite latent for a while. Um, and then this uh, podcast I listened to, this guy named Bart Bischotz was talking about photography and doing some night sky photography and how he'd done a blog post. So I went over to Bart's blog and looked up his post from 2012 and that rekindled my interest. Bart was put some photos there of things he'd shot in Ireland, how he shot them, what kind of equipment to use, and I tinkered around with a bit of that. And um, just this week before we were putting the, or before we were going to meet up, I had a look on Bart's blog, and the post is still there, and I can still see a comment I made in February 2012. <laughs> I love it. I love it. That's fantastic. So uh, I do remember that post, and I remember thinking I wanted to be able to do that. Um, unfortunately, I live where the night sky is is not something you can actually take a picture of, unless what you want to see is you know four five stars on a good night. Yeah, me too. Um, Sydney's a city. Oh, really? Yeah, Sydney's a city of five million people. So I usually have to drive for at least an hour to get to dark skies. Um, it's not unusual for me to do. 500 kilometers of driving in a night to get to a decent spot, shoot lots of photos and come back home again. Oh, wow. So you're serious about getting this done. I'm not willing. You know, I go to the backyard. <laughs> yeah. well, <laughs> when, Nope. Still no stars. You're talking 300 miles. Yeah. Wow. Well, when I was a teenager um, growing up where we are, um, this was the outskirts of the city. So there were, the sky was dark enough to do photography, but that's, you know, 40-odd years ago, so things have changed a lot since then. Wow, I bet, I bet. Uh, by the way, the air conditioning just went on here. For those listening, um, it's 95 degrees out down at Lindsay's house, so uh, I'm afraid you're going to have to bear with me on that. Oh, okay. um, so you're driving a long way. So talk about exactly how you go about uh, taking these photos, because... They're not normal photos. I mean, you're getting long exposures of the stars without movement of the stars. You're getting all this landscape in the background. So what does a typical shooting session uh, involve? Yep. Well, number one, you've got to, well, I guess you've got to have some gear, but um, it's getting to somewhere where the sky's darker than an urban area because you want to photograph the stars, not the the, the diffused light in the sky. Um, so you get your gear, which is going to be a um, a good modern camera, um, you know, one that doesn't get, it's not powered by steam and has electrons in it. Um, <laughs> and you want me to get into the sort of the settings and things like that now or? Anything, yeah, as deep as you want to go, absolutely. Sure. So you, I, I've got, I use Canon digital SLR cameras, but more and more people are using mirrorless cameras because they're becoming, uh, you know, better, equal to or now better in performance than the traditional, if 10 years is a tradition, traditional digital SLR, a wide-angle lens, um, so that you can capture a lot of what's there. A lot of people often say, gee, you must have some big telephoto lenses to shoot what you do. And I understand that because they're used to seeing big telescopes shooting things a long way away. But I want to take in as much of the view as I can in a shot with foreground. So how wide of an angle are you actually talking about here? Uh, typically 14 millimeters. Uh, my favorite lens is 24 millimeter. Um, I recently got an 8mm fisheye lens, but usually it's the 14 or 24 millimeters around that range. And that's the effective uh, width or focal length? Yeah, that's the fo effective focal length on a full-frame camera. And because of that, um, it means it's a lot easier to get a foreground that's in focus as well as the background being in focus. Um, yeah, the, the hyperfocal okay, distance okay. and things like that. So. Yeah, so you, you shoot with that, and, and you want a fast lens, so a light a lens that lets in a lot of light. So my 14mm lens is an f2.4. 
my 24 millimeter. Oh, wow. That's an expensive piece of glass. That's a prime lens, right? Yeah, that's right. It's a prime. And my 24 millimeter lens is an F1.4. And Oh, uh, holy cow. Yeah. When I shot my first photo of that, uh, with that, I went, wow, this thing sucks light out of the sky. I wouldn't be surprised if there were news reports of people saying the sky suddenly darkened for a few seconds <laughs> because I was taking a photo. But now you mentioned they might be expensive, but they are if you buy the brand name lenses. But you know, when you buy a digital SLR, your mirrorless camera, you can't, it comes with a lens which is autofocus and it's auto aperture and auto everything. In astrophotography, nightscape photography, you want fully manual. There's a, a, a company in Korea that makes lens, prime lenses which are super affordable. I've, my 24 millimeter lens uh, in Australian dollars sells new for about $800. The equivalent Canon lens is over $2,400. Because, oh, wow. Yeah, the Canon, the Canon is autofocus and auto everything. That 800, I never thought about that. For this, you don't want autofocus. No, That's the last thing in the world you, you want. You don't want autofocus. You definitely don't want image stabilization because. Um, when you've got the image stabilizer turned on a, a lens and a camera, there's micro vibrations that happen when the camera adjusts focus. That vibrates through the tripod wow. and makes it the camera vibrate more, and it creates a feedback loop, and the whole thing just never settles down. So that so, means you, know, you, you just mix two things together there. You said that when you have image stabilization on, that's actually doing autofocus. But what are oh, you talking sorry. about image? Yeah, well, yeah, sorry, but yeah, well, it combined those two things make little vibrations. And you don't, right, don't right. want that. Okay. So that means you can buy lenses that are way less expensive, um, and you can get fast glass. You know, lenses that let a lot of light in for a good price. In America, the brand sells as Rokinon. In Australia and parts of Asia, they're called Samyang. In Britain, they're sold as Bowyer. It's one company that makes identical products with different brand names for different geo regions. Oh, that's interesting. But it also means you have a good, if you can put up with manual focus in the daylight, which isn't too bad, you also have a good fast wide-angle lens that you can use for all kinds of photography. Yeah, I kind of depend on, uh, on autofocus myself, but I, one of the things that I've found challenging has been trying to use uh, do manual focus on my lenses. Um, do these lenses have a stop at infinity that you go to, or do you have to figure out where that is? You have to figure out where it is. They do have a stop, but um, that's if you use that, you're playing what we call infinity lotto, where um, you know the infinity mark on the barrel of the lens does not necessarily correlate with the infinity point of the lens. I went out my first expedition with my 14 millimeter lens. I shot for hours and hours with my lens set racked around to the infinity mark. Looked at all the shots the next morning, and I had. Um, hundreds of out-of-focus out of focus photos of the stars. Really? I wonder if that's why they've gotten rid of it on some lenses, because I know in all of the lenses I have for the Micro Four Thirds system I use for the Olympus line, they're, none of them, they just, those lenses, the, the focus just spins and spins and spins, and it drives me crazy. It's like, well, tell me where the end is. Yeah, that's right. But um, all of these manual lenses are they still have a physical infinity point. So at least you can, in the dark, you can rack around, twist your lens to your focus ring till you feel the infinity hit. You know that you're close. And then you look at the preview screen on the back of the camera with it zoomed up to 10 times or so and make sure it's focused from there. Or if you're over a certain age, you're like me, and you have your preview screen set to 10 times focus, and then you carry a photographer's loop around your neck that magnifies it further. <laughs> I have my new bionic eyes. I can finally tell that I'm out of focus, but it's getting into focus is still really hard for me. Yeah. Like, especially the moon. Yes. Yes, because you're trying to balance the, this huge amount of light coming in there with that. Um, it, it takes practice, but, um, hey, that's my philosophy of photography is that every shot is practice for the next one. Oh, that, there you go. I have noticed I am getting slightly better at it. I've I've successfully gotten a couple of shots I was pleased with, and there were quite a few years before that started <laughs> to happen. Yeah. So that's lenses. So you've got your digital SLR or mirrorless camera. 
you've got um, wide-angle lenses. You need a good solid tripod, not something that's flimsy. You don't want the weight of the camera because the wider a lens is, generally the heavier it is because it's got a wider and thicker piece of glass at the front of it. So you want a tripod that's going to carry the weight of your camera and your lens. You need some way to trigger the camera other than the button on top of the camera because if you press that button, the camera is going to, it's going to shake and you don't want right, the camera right. shaking. So if, at a minimum, you can get away with how most of us started and that's you turn on the self-timer function on your camera so that after, say, two or ten seconds after you press the button, then the shutter will open. So you can set the camera up, press the button, the camera will stop wobbling by the time the shutter opens, and there's your photo. There are a lot of cameras have Wi-Fi and Bluetooth built in, so you can trigger it from your smartphone. I've found I don't use... Yeah, that's that's the way I do it. That yeah. works, but it's kind of kooji because you've got to set up the Wi-Fi, and then the Wi-Fi takes over the display, and yeah. it's it's hard. And it chews batteries, at least on my Canon cameras, the Wi-Fi chews batteries like nothing on Earth. Um, you just don't get yeah. as much shooting time. Um, and also, I've had times when I've tried it with my smartphone, and I get a phone call just as I'm about to hit the button to take the photo. So, Yeah, that was before Do Not Disturb came along, but yeah. Um, then you can get wired remotes, so it's a remote controller, remote control trigger that plugs into the camera. But like back in the days of the first TV remotes, where we had long cables coiled across our living room floors, <laughs> or the preferable one is a a wireless remote. Um, they used to be infrared, but typically now they're Wi-Fi. They run 2.4 gigahertz Wi-Fi, um, so you can do a single press of the button on that to trigger the shutter or any of them, and they start, you know, I, I buy some from B&H Photo in New York. I buy them online. They're about $30 US to get a, a Wi-Fi triggered remote, which is a very good price. But it's, it also has a timer built in so you can set uh, how long the shutter is going to be open, how long between shots. You can do a sequence of shots um, all from these little $30 US remotes. Well, so that's cool, but... Isn't that going to chew up your battery too? Because that's wireless. Um, well, there's a battery in the remote. So, but, yeah. but it's got to be. You got to have Wi-Fi turned on on the on the camera if it's Wi-Fi. No, no. The remote actually has its own receiver. Oh, okay. So you plug that in. Yeah, that what, just you put that on the hot, the hot shoe. You or? put that into the hot shoe and then plug it in the camera's um, remote port and trigger ah. away. Okay. Okay, that makes more sense. Yeah, and uh, they they'll shoot for days on a on a set of you know AAA batteries. They're very 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 efficient on the battery. Um, okay, okay, but it's and it's not chewing any battery from the camera at all. Exactly. It makes me wonder. My camera's too far away. I don't know that mine has an input. I have to check that. What are you shooting with these days? Uh, uh, the Olympus EM Five Mark II. Um, almost certain that it does. But what a lot have now is a built-in interval timer um, so that you can set the camera to shoot a set number of frames over a period ah. um, built-in. I know my later Canon camera has that as well. Well, I do want you to get into that. I don't know if I'm jumping out of order of the way you ah, wanted to no, explain no. this, but so how, how do you get these photos where you have all the light from the Milky Way, and yet you've also got the light of trees and landscape and people and water and all these. I mean, yeah. you can't be doing that in, like, I clicked a button. Yeah, well, a uh, lot of practice. Um, a lot of times on Facebook, Instagram, Flickr, a lot of photos you see, not all of them, but a lot are a composite photo where the person will shoot the foreground with um, controlled lighting. And then they'll turn all that off and then shoot the background stars and blend them in Photoshop. And mm -hmm. that's fine. As long as people admit to that when they post their photos, nobody's got a problem with it. My preference is for a single shot. So to, to be able to get the Milky Way in that much detail in your photos, you need to shoot at a high um, sensitivity, a high ISO setting. And back in the days of black and white film, I used to shoot on f what was called fast film, which was 400 ISO. 
Um, <laughs> now the back when four hundred was high, right? Yeah, that's right, and more expensive too. Um, now I shoot at nothing less than thirty two hundred ISO. Uh, wow! Typically, I shoot at sixty four hundred. The modern. Um, now that's highly dependent on your camera whether it's going to be how how fast you how much light you can let in how high you can have the ISO yeah and still get a clean noiseless yeah image. so my main camera is a Canon EOS six D which I've had since twenty thirteen or twenty fourteen so mm-hmm. let's say it's five years old that thing shoots at sixty four hundred with very little noise. Nice. Um, this, the 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 modern the current Sony's um, the Olympus and the Canon Nikon the mirrorless cameras they all shoot at you know five digit ISO with very mm-hmm. little noise. Um, sometimes I'll shoot at twelve thousand eight hundred, which lets me get a quicker shutter speed. Um, and yet yeah, noise is um, it's much much better than it used to be. One of the things I've enjoyed in listening to Bart's Let's Talk Photography podcast is understanding that balance of of ISO and the shutter speed and the aperture and how you how you blend the three of those together to get the right image. Yeah, the exposure triangle, as it's called, and um, yeah, yeah, and, yeah, and and the good thing is you got those parameters to play with, and the even better thing is if you practice doing that before you go out to get that shot that you've been waiting to get. <laughs> it's like not buying new gear at the duty free at the airport before you go on your trip, you know, which I've done before, and you spend the trip reading the manual, and your wife's saying, "Can't you just watch the movie?" So <laughs> yeah. So we've got um, a high ISO on the camera, as wide an aperture as you can or as you can get away with. So aperture for the non-photography people is the 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 scale, if you like, of how much light the lens is letting in. So the, the hole in the front of the camera where the light comes through. If you've got a, lo- a little number, a low number, like 2.8, 1.4, that means it lets a lot of light in and the... If you were to look down the lens at 1.4, you wouldn't see the blades of the iris that controls that. You'd just see straight through the lens. Now, so now, uh, when you get to the widest aperture, though, that makes that focus that much harder. It does, um, but everything in the sky is at infinity. Um, so once you've got something in the sky in focus, everything in the sky is in focus. Uh, it's just your foreground that you have to worry about then. But even still, if you're far enough back from a foreground element that you want in there, generally it's in focus anyway. Even at even at 1.4, you'll still get away with yeah, that. Yeah, it's getting that initial focus. Let's rewind yeah. to what I said earlier. That yeah, I'm still yeah. In trouble with. Yeah, and th- there. Wait, th- you you might want to back off from the mic a little Thanks bit. Thanks You're peaking Thank a little you. bit. Yep. Thank you. Okay. Uh, I don't want to peak too early, as the saying goes. <laughs> Excuse me. Yeah. Okay. Then, so, widest aperture and the and the most uh, the highest ISO you can take without a lot of noise. Yeah. yeah. And then the shutter speed. If you're shooting shots like most of mine, where you don't want the stars to be trailing, you want the stars to be dots of light rather than little streaks. You want the longest shutter speed that you can get away with. So, if I put my camera there and left the shutter open for one minute. Uh, it doesn't matter which lens I'm using. There'll be the stars won't be dots of light. They will be little trails, little lines on the on the exposure. Right. Um, so don't you mean you want the shortest uh, shutter speed you can get? You said longest. Yeah, you want the longest that you can get away with because the longer the shutter speed, the more light the camera will capture. But you don't want. See, the Earth's always turning. So if you have the shutter open too long, the Earth's going to turn too much that the stars will move and you'll get little streaks on your photo. Right. So don't you want it as short as you can get away with? No, because as short as you can get away with means you won't get as... Well, you could look at it that way, but it's usually as long as you it's can get It's halfway in between those two, right? Yeah. So with my... You want, you want to go as long as you can before the... The stars trail. Stopping dots. Yeah. With, so how long is that? That should just be math, right? You should just that's be able math. To tell me yeah. that number. Yeah. So there there are rules of thumb that people use. The most common one people use is the rule of five hundred, which is um, you take five hundred and divide it by the focal length of your lens. So um, for my fourteen millimeter lens, 
it's around about 30 seconds. Now, I should back up a bit and say I don't use the rule of 500. I use the rule of 400 because I like to go conservative on that. So for a so we take 400 and if I'm dividing that by say my 14 millimeter lens that gives me a shutter shutter time of 28 seconds on average 28.5 before the stars will look like little trails in the photo. So that would do the math for me one more time cuz I I've, I've tried to do this and I and I don't get it. So you're saying you take 400 divided by your 14 millimeter. Yep. And that gives you 28, 28 seconds? 28.57 28. seconds, yep. Okay. That seems like you'd have really long trails at 28 seconds. Not in a 14 millimeter lens. Um, okay, so things, that's, that's things the look, trick. Okay. Things look far away and the stars are just dots. Now, it's a rule of thumb, and um, the thing about thumbs is that everyone's thumbs are different sizes. <laughs> <laughs> and some people's left thumb doesn't look like they're right. So, it, it's so when a, you say you want to go conservative, you actually are going a little shorter? Yeah. So um, okay. with that, it's 28 seconds. I tend to shoot at 25. As I mentioned, most people starting out in this or even people doing it for years, they use a rule of 500, um, you know, because it's an easier number to do in their head and things like that. Now, with, with a rule of 500, you'd be exposing for 35 seconds. Uh, but that, yeah, you'll see trails in the stars. Now, again, rule of thumb, it's a guide because stars closer to the pole, like Polaris, you know, the pole star in the northern hemisphere, they, okay. they'll they move, they'll, they'll have shorter trails in that time than stars that are near the equator because of angular movement. It's really right. trying to go into the math. So, you see, I said math and not maths like an Australian. <laughs> I can speak about I, I actually think I, I'm trying to start saying maths. I like it. Yeah. Oh, that's aluminium, good. all that. I'm, yeah. I'm just adopting it. <laughs> yeah. So, so at 28 seconds or 25 seconds, let's say, with the 14 millimeter lens, mm -hmm. that's enough to get the. So the stars are going to be holding still at 6400 ISO. You're getting enough light at the 14 millimeters. You're get, you're actually going to be able to get beautiful Milky Way in one shot. That's right. Okay. It should be now, the what Milky Way's visible. Stuff? Um, yeah, well, well, yeah, sure. So most, even at places I shoot that are uh, yeah, intensely dark, um, there's still ambient light around that lights up the foreground. But I do carry a, a, a phalanx, if you like, of LED light banks with me, um, mm -hmm. LED lamps, if you want. Um, and they have an adjustable color temperature. So in photography, you'd be familiar with talking about white balance. Mm -hmm. um, you can adjust the white balance of these lights uh, so that they match as much as possible a natural-looking light. And the problem there is what's natural in dark, you know. Um, I've shot photos where I haven't used any foreground lighting at all, but the foreground's totally visible because for every one of those 25 seconds that the lens is open, capturing photons of light coming from the sky, they're also capturing all the photons of light that are happening around you. Uh, if there's a town that's 10 miles behind you when you're shooting the photo, there's going to be spill of light pollution from that town, and that's often enough to light up the foreground in your photograph. Okay, so that's a good thing in this case. Yeah, the moon is a good thing to use at the right phase. I've got one of my favorite photos of the Milky Way over a 150-year-old church out in a rural area. I shot it at about 3 in the morning, and the moon was in its crescent phase. So the moon had only just risen, in, and it was a crescent on the horizon. That was enough light to naturally light the foreground in 25 wow. seconds, and... You know, it's not harsh white LED type light. It's, you know, the moon reflects the light of the sun. And when it's low on the horizon, it's a bit more yellow than it is when it's above. So it gave it a really nice natural looking light. And the moon was not in the photo, though. No, it was behind me. Oh, so, that, was a, that was a good day. Yeah. And I actually got a shadow selfie there. There's a shadow at the bottom of the photo of my camera tripod and me, but I didn't go for the selfie in that case. <laughs> <laughs> we'll have to make sure that that one's in the show notes. Yeah. Oh. So, 
So now, do you do, when you talk about having LED light banks, mm-hmm. would you call that light painting? I've heard about that. Yeah, well, yeah, light painting, often painting, you think of real painting, and that involves the action of moving your hand backwards and forwards, holding a brush or a roller. And often in light painting, people are, and me too, um, you're, you're moving around, moving the light to try and evenly cover the whole area. I do that, but I tend to try and use static lights, so they'll be on tripods, um, out of the shot, or sometimes oh. you'll have one out of the shot, uh, lighting the foreground, you might put one behind a building or a tree or something to to point upwards and light up the leaves of the tree, all kinds of things like that. There's a really good um, U.S. astrophotographer named Royce Bear. He's based in Utah, and he has this theorem, this thing he does called low-level lighting, where he has lights set to a level that the naked eye can barely see but they are perfect for lighting up foregrounds over 25 to 30 seconds of photograph. Because oh. yeah, we don't need the light bright enough for us to see it in the photo. We need it bright enough for the camera to see it. So, okay, so I'm looking at some of your pictures while I'm, while I'm talking to you here. There's one, for example, that's got some really tall trees in the immediate foreground and then, of course, this amazing Milky Way in the background. So you've got these light banks pointed up at these trees. Yeah. Are they the poplars that are sort of bending inwards? Yes. Yep. Uh, yeah, so I've got um, in the – you can see there on the, the guardrail on the side of the road, it's pretty bright. I had the light just out to the left of me there. I didn't do a very good job of evenly lighting that one, but that's the idea there. You've got it pointed sort of enough forward to get the road and hopefully upwards enough to get the trees then you've got to look out for the fact that if there's moisture in the air like fog or mist that's going to bounce the light back at you and ruin the shot so you you know it's a juggle yeah so are you saying that these led lights are you don't have them on very bright that's right dim yeah. to, your, to your eye yep okay and now in the days of bluetooth and all that kind of stuff there's one the most popular light um it's called the loom cube l-u-m-e Oh, I have, I have a couple of those. Yeah, now they're Bluetooth controllable. Oh, I don't have those. Yeah, so um, I'm pretty sure that's a standard feature in the Loom Cubes. Um, I got mine a long time ago. Oh, okay, maybe it was one of the earlier ones. There's a, a knockoff brand called Lytra, which um, looks the same, does the same thing. So you can control those by Bluetooth. Now, I don't think the Loom Cube does, but in the Lytra I have, you can change the color temperature from your phone. Oh, wow. So you can do a shot. Look at the camera. Go no, that's too blue. Try another one. Yeah, that's a bit yellow. Let's go. Um, but these things are so bright that even with mine, I have it set to five percent. And for a fifteen expo, fifteen second exposure, I can generally only have the light on for two or three seconds. It's so bright. Oh, so oh, got, really? Yeah. Okay. One eye looking at the camera. One eye looking at my phone. My fingers trying to find the slider on the screen to do it. Yeah, you can do that. And you can actually um, gang them together now so you could have lights spread around the location if you wanted to, control them all from one app and have them turn on, turn off at set times. That's getting pretty... Is a Sherpa that's carrying all your stuff? Oh, my, um, my backpack used to fit everything in it. And when it did... Where's my calculator? Um, it weighs 25 times 2.2... It weighs 55 pounds. Yikes. Yeah. And so, yeah, I've got – and one time I bent over a little bit backwards and it pulled me over. That was very embarrassing. <laughs> but the good thing about that is it's nighttime and no one's around to see you be embarrassed. <laughs> so you've, you've got one here I'm looking at in um, Mummel, and it looks like a 360 photo. I can see the horizon almost all the way around. Um, yeah, which – it says Church in the Brown. How would uh, you do yeah. that? That's with an 8mm fisheye lens. Oh. Yeah, and that was actually the first, that was the second photograph I ever took with that lens. Um, contrary to my own advice before about not buying gear just when you're heading <laughs> to a shoot, I bought the gear a few days before, and it came from, that was another one I bought from B&H Photo over the interwebs. Um, it was a, too good a price to pass up, and even with the exchange rate and shipping to Australia, it was still cheaper to buy it from the U.S. by about it was about forty percent cheaper than buying it here. Wow! Yeah, wow, so that photo, that shot with the eight millimeter lens, wow. um, with the camera pointing pretty much straight up, but 
probably angled down a little bit towards the church. I lit the church, you can see there, with the LEDs, which are, again, they're out of shot. Um, the trees are in silhouette, which is okay, because the church is the main thing you want your eyes to go to, the church in the Milky Way. Um, that was a, yeah, what, 200 Ks? What's that? 120 mile drive. And I got there about 10 minutes before the Milky Way would be in that position where it was almost vertical. Um, yeah, so it, to describe the photo, what you see is this very small church lit up in the foreground, and the Milky Way is vertical, coming straight down into it, almost like it's lightning hitting it, and the horizon in a circle around it. That is really a cool shot. Yeah. Well, so we've we've talked a lot about gear, but we've got to switch gears to no pun intended, because I'm just guessing you don't push the shutter button, have it go, and then go home and go done. There's uh, something you do to these photos afterwards. Yeah, that that's the ideal, and I actually do have. Uh, I don't know if I. Yeah, I do have some somewhere in my. There's a thousand odd photos in my Instagram feed, but some in there they're what we call SOOC, straight out of camera. And that's kind of the um, the holy grail is that you can get a shot that you've lit correctly, exposed correctly, uh, or exposed enough that you don't have to adjust it at all. But most of them... And you've succeeded at that. Wow. Yeah. Most of them, uh, they go through... I use Lightroom. I was a mm -hmm. very committed um, Apple Aperture user from version one. I even got the the $200 whatever it was rebate from Steve Jobs when they brought out version 2 and he apologized for how bad version 1 was. Um, yeah. I think that's what killed him was having to apologize for something. <laughs> I didn't know that ever happened. Yeah. Um, so when uh, Apple killed Aperture, I was listening to you talking about um, a bunch of apps and some podca other podcasts I listened to, photography podcasts. Um, a lot of people seem to be going with Lightroom. And because they offer their photographer's bundle, which is, I think it's nine ninety nine US a month, which gives you, I don't know, you don't like licenses, um, gives you Photoshop and Photoshop and Lightroom. I, I went with that. And I have to say that by coincidence <clears throat> or design, a lot of things in Lightroom are exactly the same as they were in Aperture, including keyboard shortcuts. And I'm, oh, okay. I'm talking about more, more than just Apple Command C and V there. Yeah. <laughs> By the way, I'm not totally against um, uh, subscription. I, I, yeah. There's some things that are worth it to me. Yeah, yeah. Well, for, for the price of Lightroom and Adobe to buy them versus this, and I know there's other apps, but, yeah, I stuck with that. So I quickly had to okay. up my Lightroom game. Um, and, look, the the most common adjustment I do in Lightroom with my photos is to crop them. Because uh, my number one place I post photos is Instagram. And Instagram will only take uh, like a 4 by 5 format crop that'll oh, okay. if you want to fill the frame. Um, so I'll crop them. You adjust the brightness. I tend not to have to adjust the white balance too much. And that was probably something I should have mentioned in the technical bit is the white balance, i.e. how the camera sees white. And... Uh, a lot of people shoot at auto white balance, but I don't because that means if something slight changes in the lighting between shots, like your foreground lighting or a car driving past with his headlights on, the camera's going to go, ooh, that's a different color. I'm going to change the white balance for that. And that makes it hard to adjust a batch of photos. So I set my set my um, I, my white balance on the camera to around about 3,800 Kelvin. And that then means when I pull them into Lightroom, there's not a lot of adjusting to do. And that number was based on recommendations from other photographers and lots of experimenting. So, so I don't know that I have a number on mine. Bart's probably going to yell at me. Yes, I told <laughs> this to you, Allison, and you did. Yeah. But I, I'm used to seeing little things that go like it's in the in the shade or I'm That's in the right. sun or there's a picture sun of the moon. Yep. Which one of those is that? Sunlight, cloud, shade. So um, you want tungsten light? which is around about 3,200 Kelvin. Huh. So you usually will have one that looks like a fluorescent tube, um, and then there's one that looks like a traditional light bulb that, um, that's a tungsten filament bulb, and that's probably one of the closest to the, the color temperature I shoot at. Okay. But and why, why that temperature? Uh, yeah, that was it was trial and error, but it was also um, seeing what a lot of the guys that I was – 
whose work I was ogling um, online, what they shot at. And the good thing about today with photography and like so many other things is that with social media, you've got this incredible resource pool out there. So you can put up a post in a group and say, hey, guys, what do you shoot at for astrophotography? And you'll get a whole swathe come back. And I found that most people were settling around 3,700 to 3,900 Kelvin. And most okay. cameras, yeah, most cameras do um, have an a, an option to dial in the number you want to shoot at. Okay, but it's the, probably in there. Yeah, and the key There's thing a is, lot of menus in my camera. Yeah, keep it consistent between shots. It just makes it makes processing simpler. That's one less step. You know, one step less to do is, hey, I don't have to adjust the white balance because every shot's the same. Away you go. Um, okay. Yeah, so cropping, white balance, um, brightening sometimes. I'll sometimes use the, or often use the shadow tool to bring up the foreground. If I haven't lit the foreground enough, I'll use the shadow adjustment in Lightroom to bring up the foreground. Uh, Lightroom has a, oh, sorry for bragging about Lightroom, but that's what I use. <laughs> I do you apologize for that? That's awesome. <laughs> I don't use it for any photo. I don't have anything against the No, apps. I know, I know. I, I just don't. Just I, the company. I feel ashamed for not using Affinity Photo. It must be one of one of the few apps I've heard of on the Silicast that I don't use. <laughs> <laughs> you got to remember to mention Text Expander later too. Um, yeah, <laughs> so Lightroom is great for that. Lightroom's denoise tool for removing noise from photos is amazing for astrophotography. I used to use a purchased... Um, a plugin um, for Photoshop on its own and for Aperture before, which who's Topaz, um, but I oh, yeah. haven't. I remember them. Yep, which is great, uh, and I keep updating it, but I barely touch it because the 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 noise reduction in Lightroom is very good. And there's a, a a couple in South Africa who call themselves PhotographingSpace.com. And they wrote some Photoshop actions for denoising, um, brightening stars and things like that. And that's a pretty good tool to use as well for that. You said photographingspace.com? Yeah, fantastic site. The, he's, um, he was born in Colorado, I think, or, or California. He's an American. She's a native uh, South African. Um, and he moved to, down there. And they are just, they are the kind of the pod feet of astrophotography. In a lot of ways, because the website's full of resources, it's never a problem for them to answer a person's question. They are encouraging of everyone who posts stuff on their site. Uh, really amazing people. Oh, that's really cool. So, actions for Lightroom. Music. Yeah, that's the one. Okay. Oh, actions for Photoshop. Sorry. Yeah. Oh, for Photoshop. Okay. Yeah. Um. Yeah, so that's uh, that. I'll d I do a lot of panoramic work where you shoot multiple multiple frames that overlap so you can take in a scene that's too wide for um, for one photo. And that f photograph you were looking at before with the poplar trees, that's a, that's a panorama, uh, vertical panorama. So you take a shot with the camera pointing towards the, the ground or the foreground and you, you gradually point it up towards over your head, which is called the... The zenith, um, and blend them together in software. I was going to say, so you're, I mean, your camera's going to be jiggling all over the place. How do you line the stars up? Um, look, you can lock your tri lock your tripod's got three axes that it's going to, you know, up, down, left, right, and whatever the other one is. <laughs> Right, right. Yeah. But we're talking about the, the miniature movements of stars yeah. of how long you're exposing. And, and no matter how careful you are, you're going to be off by degrees, right? No, no. So you 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 take the first shot, shutter closes, you look through the viewfinder, and you want to make sure you can still see at least a third of the stars that were in the last shot at the bottom of the next one. Okay. Uh, take that photo, do it again. But what works best for that is what's called a panoramic, a panoramic head. Oh, okay. Yeah, so it's got um, click stops built into it. So you take a shot, you rotate it a little, and you feel the head click into the next stop, which is must have minor at 15 degrees. So it's 15 degrees moved from the last photo. Take the next one, move it, take, 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 take. So you, okay. um, yeah, you make sure they overlap. Um, Lightroom, Photoshop, and uh, I think On One Photo has it as well. They have built-in tools to create panoramas. 
you point it to a folder. And they're good enough. And they're good enough for astrophotography. Yeah, for for single row or single column panoramas, where you're just shooting. You know, you might say it's daytime, and you're pointed at a lighthouse, and you want to shoot around to the other side of the, you know, behind you. Um, that's a single row. You just go do that. I shoot a lot of double or triple row panoramas where I'll shoot a row of photographs, then go back to the start point and, and lift the camera up a bit higher, shoot the next row. Photoshop and Lightroom struggle a bit with that, um, and that's where you turn to specialty tools. Like in Windows is Microsoft's ICE, image, whatever it is, image something, image composition and enhancing or whatever. It's free. It does really good panoramas. Um who does that? Microsoft. Does for Windows, you said? Yeah, for Windows. Oh. On the Mac, the most popular one I think is PT GUI, PTGUI. Um, and the PT is some um, panoramic tools which run in Unix, and then someone wrapped a GUI around it, and that's why it's called PT GUI. If um, you've just got to give astronomers points for imaginative names, haven't you? <laughs> <laughs> I like it. So that's also for panorama. What did the PT stand for again? Uh, I think it's panorama tools, um, which is what it was called in, in Unix. Um, and that's Windows, Mac, and Linux. Um, there's another one called Hugin, which I don't know where it gets its name. That's, that's multi-platform as well. I've been using one for years called Autopano Pro, which is really good. It, it, it analyzes the photographs and tells you what sort of panorama it suggests would be best. Um, oh really? Yeah, but I went to upgrade it, update it recently, and went to the developer's website, and they said we're closed. Ah, oh. they got bought by GoPro a number of years ago, oh. um, because um, they do tools for making three hundred and sixty degree panoramas, and GoPro were like, "Yeah, we need that technology," and then GoPro aren't exactly having a good time of it in the last few years financially, and they closed the whole thing down. So. Oh. I need to have one Mac that will still run that app for the next several years until I learn the other ones because it was a hundred euros to buy it. So. Oh um, wow! Yeah. Oh, that's a shame. Yeah. Nice. It still does the job. Well, I think some of your panoramas have been. That's how we actually connected. Was yeah. I just wrote something like, "I'm not worthy to even look at a photo this cool." <laughs> I think. <laughs> Well, I don't remember which one it was, but it was amazing. Yeah. Well, that's what I thought when I what's what I thought when I started out, and I'm pleased to say I think I've gotten a little bit better. Um, I and look, hey, twenty four thousand people on Instagram like me, so maybe <laughs> maybe I'm doing something right. I was really you're, privileged. You're popular. They love me. <laughs> Gee, the the angst when you lose a follower, it's terrible. Um, no. <laughs> Fifty fifty five. I should be over that kind of. Um, you know, triviality. But I, I shot a photo back in 2015 done like it's a holiday place I've been going to since I was 11 years old. It's this old uh, sandstone church. It's not lit up at night. I just lit it with a what you'd call a flashlight, just a, a tungsten bulb flashlight bounced off a, a photographic reflector, you know, the, the round the discs the photographers oh, use. Yeah. 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 I, I bounced the light off that, painted the front of the church with the light, Milky Way was above it. I put it into a competition which runs every year. It's run out of France, um, the Nightscape Photographers Awards. And in 2015, I came fifth out of 400 entrants from 50 countries. Wow. And the top and 10 were invited. This is some of your very early work. Yeah. And the top 10 were invited to Paris to the exhibition of the photos. Well, we paid our own way, but... Um, I said to my wife, look, we just can't afford to go. And the look she gave me, and she just said, there is no way you are not taking me to Paris. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you thought it was about you, right? <laughs> yeah. And, and that's good. And, I, you know, I, like most people, I like the fact that I won something. But the, the biggest buzz I get is when someone comments a photo and says, thanks so much. You've inspired me to go out and try it for myself. Oh, and that, oh wow. Yeah, that's that's why for every photo I post, I always put the settings that I used because I have learned so much from other people. I want everyone else to be able to do it and enjoy themselves too. Oh, wow. I, I know Bart feels the same way. So for him to have gotten to hear that how you got inspired to start back up again was because of something he did. 
I think that's uh that's that's fantastic. That's kind of a, the great circle of life right there. Yeah, and I'm pleased I hope he gets to hear this because um I forgot to ever go back to that blog post and tell him what I'd been doing. So um yeah, hats off to Bart for that. Well, I will quote him directly. Uh, Ten minutes before we started recording, I'm really looking forward to this episode, so uh, he will definitely be listening for sure. Oh, that's good. And it, being, well, an, since... being an Irishman, he can listen to it twice, to be sure, to be sure. So. <laughs> well, if uh, anybody wants to follow you, I'm sure they will want to follow you. How would they do that? Uh, sure. On Instagram, I'm at Nightscapades. On Twitter, I'm at Nightscapades. On Flickr, I'm at I'm Nightscapades. On 500 Picks, I'm Nightscapades. On Facebook, I'm Nightscapades. Oh, so be what was that again? <laughs> <laughs> well, this has been really fun, Doug. I enjoyed the heck out of this, and I appreciate you getting up early on a Saturday morning and recording with me on a Friday night for me. How's the what? future? How's the future? <laughs> Well, you're on Saturday already. Yeah, well, look, um, here in Sydney, Australia, which is at the same latitude south that LA is north, it's blue skies and sunny. Um, we're just finishing winter here and heading into autumn, but we've had record high temperatures recently. We had the hottest July and the hottest August that, that we've experienced ever. Funny coincidence. Um, yeah, and look, I want to say thank you to you because I know you're you're visiting with family today and you've taken some time out. And I didn't really have to get up early because we started this around 9 a.m. my time and I've been awake since 6. So, yeah, There's and, people who consider that early. Yeah, and I, I really appreciate Oh, go ahead. Sorry, I was just going to say, despite bragging on my number of followers and winning a competition, I am quite shy. So when I said to you in, in the Instagram comment, oh, maybe you could have me on Chit Chat Across the Pond, I spent probably the rest of the day thinking, that was so forward. You are such – that is so egotistical <laughs> of you. No, I was delighted. I mean, as soon as you said that, I was like, I should totally have him on, on Chit Chat. That was fantastic. No, I really appreciate that. Well, thanks for coming on, and let's not go another seven years without talking. Yeah, for sure. Well, I um, keep promising to do some promos and things, so I must get around to that for you. And uh, this is another chance to thank you. Um, I've been, I don't know how many years I've been a listener, but really appreciate you and Steve and the show and the community and your generosity and that's why I was happy to compare the photographing space guys to you because of it is a community um I've never ever known you to do anything for what what you get out of it uh, and I can tell that what you get out of it is seeing other people use their technology better enjoy their lives better and be part of a community absolutely all right well I'm going to let it stop right there because it's not going to get better than that thanks for coming on the show Hey, you're welcome. Have a great day, and I hope your Saturday works out as well as mine. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Chit Chat Across the Pond. Did you notice there weren't any ads in the show? That's because this show is not ad-supported. It's supported by you. If you learned something, or maybe you were just entertained, consider contributing to the Podfeet podcast. You can do that by going over to podfeet.com and look for the big red button that says Support the Show. When you click that button, you're going to find different ways to contribute. If you like to do a one-time donation, you can click the PayPal button. If you want to make a recurring contribution, click the weekly Patreon button. Or another way to contribute is to record a listener contribution. It's a great way to help the NoSillaCastaways learn from you. If you want to contact me for any reason, you can email me at allison at podfeet.com and you can follow me on Twitter at podfeet. Maybe you want to talk to other NoSillaCastaways. There's two great places to do that. You can do that in our Slack group at podfeet.com slash Slack, or you can join our Facebook group at podfeet.com slash Facebook. Thanks for listening and stay subscribed.